I feel sure that every one of you who has listened to our chairman must have been saying in your hearts, thank God for that. I forgot that I was the old man. I was thinking to myself, my, that's the group I want to belong to. Well, I suppose I do in a sense. And you know, there's one friend who comes to this meeting who brings his lad from school and he says the mathematical master is preaching at the local church so he went to hear him and he came back and he said, he's nothing like the old man, that's me. (laughs) So, there it is, I know where I stand in that sense. But oh, what a comfort to think that there is expressed and I hope it's the expression of all those who haven't been able to take part that whatever else may be said about us, that we've been faithful to the trust. Well now, there's been no collaboration between myself and the speakers and the chairman. As members of the body of Christ, we work in relation to one another through our head. And I was so glad that our brother Dredge, I didn't know, you see, last time he spoke, he spoke about Jonah. Well, he might have spoken about Obadiah or someone for all I knew, you see. I didn't know. But I was so glad he stressed not only the high glory of our calling and the privileges attached to it, but he's made us feel the responsibility that comes with being associated with Christ and being entrusted with his truth. Well, now our chairman... He's given me a start this evening. He's drawn attention that in the chapter that we read, starting with the great principle of right division, the word of truth, it ends in the same chapter with acknowledging the truth. Well, and he's simply taking the wind out of my sails because that's what I was going to say. Isn't that good? Without collaboration to say, we're all on the same subject. Now, you might have expected, of course, when we had 2 Timothy 2.15, we just said, oh, well, I know what he's going to talk about. Right division. Well, friends, you see, for 50 years, I've had to be almost like a voice crying in the wilderness to persuade men that they were not losing, but they were gaining by putting into practice this principle. And whenever you have to stand like that, it's almost impossible to go on without exaggeration. You have to hammer away and speak so much about it that eventually it seems as though right division is your very saviour. But it isn't so. Well now, if I had another 50 years in front of me, which some people may say, oh, I'm glad he hasn't, I would hammer away at a parallel text. And that is, the words which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual. And I believe another 50 years could be employed in examining, pursuing, and what it would ultimately do, that is to say, a hundred years from the start of this witness, we bring the truth into a sort of balance. Because we couldn't help ourselves in faithfulness to keep going from one to the other. We must, because nobody else would listen to us. So I'm very glad to think that already the subject has been anticipated. That we are not meeting here just to smooth one another down and preen ourselves and say, we belong to this high calling, we have all these riches of glory. And somebody may look you up and down and say, well, if you hadn't told me so, I'd never believed it. You see, that's a bad thing, isn't it? 
They should look us up and down and say, Would you eat and tell us? Even Moses wished not that his face shone. And so we have this privilege with its echoing, balancing responsibility. Now I'm going to speak about Scotland. And there's one friend here that I honour very much. For he has stood as a stalwart in connection with the witness in Scotland. Our brother James Allen sitting in front of me. But he knows what the Aberdeen folks are, at least what they say they are. You know, bang went Saxons after you've been in London for a day. But the, there's no more generous hearted people that I meet in connection with our work than the Abedonians. And as they're going to listen to this tape recording, I'll have to say that to keep things to see. <laughs> but once in Aberdeen, I put a half a crown on the palm of my hand and I said, even in Aberdeen, it's quite safe. Anyone can take that half a crown off my hand and keep it if they can take one side only. Now you say, what's all this? That's absolute truth, friends. We cannot take from the Scriptures one side only. And the more we take one side only, the more exaggerated the whole thing becomes. So what I want to do this evening is to occupy the time at my disposal in stressing the need for balance. You know, a person who's unbalanced, however good he may be at anything else, is not so serviceable as he might be. Now you know, perhaps most of you know, that we have had to move from 33 Union Road to Beckenham Road. We believe the change has been under the hand of God and we believe it will be blessed. But our clocks seem to think otherwise. We've sh shook them and we've wound them and we've pitched them about and it turned out the only thing that was a matter with them was the shelf on which they were standing were not absolutely true. So when we put a spirit level on, instead of shaking the old clock, it's going like just the same. You know, that's very much like God's people. We shake them and we oil them and we wind them, but they're out of balance, or the truth hasn't been balanced. So I felt that's what we must do this evening. Now I'm going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because there is, in that chapter, two examples of this principle that you do not get the truth by merely emphasising one side. And then, as time will permit, we'll look at a few other examples. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says in verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. It doesn't say having these seals, but this seal. And yet it turns out to be a seal with two sides to it. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that it is. Well, stop there. Say no more. That's high Calvinistic doctrine. Chosen before the foundation of the world, sovereign grace, election, predestination, ultimate glory, without moving a finger. That's true, friends. But if you stop there, it ceases to be true. Because he goes on to say, the Lord knoweth them that are his, that's one side. And let him that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, that's the other side. Well, supposing you're boasting about being chosen, and you're seated with Christ, and you're emphasising heavenly places, and you're looking down upon the other man who's labouring away in a little chapel and doesn't know it, and all the time you haven't seen the other side of the seal. 
that he that names the name of Christ, and especially in that context, should have an irreproachable life. You're not saved because you depart from iniquity. You depart from iniquity because you're saved. But you see, it's not given to any one of us, thank God, to turn the pages of God's book and run your finger down and say, I'll see if old so-and-so's there. Oh no, that's no only to God. But what we can do is run our finger down the record of the man's life and say, well, he may be one of the Lord's own, but I should never have believed it unless. You see, that mustn't be, must it? So now we're dealing with the two sides. The double seal. Now you go back a few verses in this second epistle, this second chapter, and you get an example again of the need for this balance. He says, in verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Uh, the word could be rendered, in this, to give a little more emphasis, that they may also obtain that salvation which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. For there is a salvation in Christ Jesus, which may not have the glory in view that he has here. But you say, how do you know that? Oh, I've done what so many friends fail to do. They get stuck at a verse. And sometimes, as I've told you before, they write to me. And then I have to pay the fruit me stand to answer them. And sometimes, if I were rude enough, I'd simply write back and say, read the next verse. Now, the next verse says, it is a faithful saying. For if we be dead, or the modern idiom, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now the only if there is the if of argument. There's no doubt about it. If any person can align himself with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans and elsewhere, that when the Saviour died, he died as your substitute. If we remember that he quoted Isaiah 53 and said, the words are written of me, he was reckoned with the transgressors, if Christ could be reckoned with the transgressors and treated like he was, then I can be reckoned with him in the glory and be treated like he is. If God can do one, he can and will do the other. So here we have a position which is without the possibility of question or doubt. If we believe Christ, if we acknowledge him as our saviour, if we have passed from death unto life, we shall live with him. But now we come to something else. If we suffer, and this is not positive suffering, this is more, the word is elsewhere translated, if we endure, because I know one faithful soul said, well, I can never put myself there because I can't say that what I've put up with in Christian life could be called suffering in view of what, you see, but it's the more modest term. If we endure, what then? We shall also, now the word also is adding something, isn't it? It's not merely saying the same thing, it's adding something, right? If we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall also, what? Reign with him. Now reigning is another thing, isn't it? Reigning has to do with a crown. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 verse 4, he says this, verse 6, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. 
I have kept the faith. Henceforth, that is laid up for me a crown. In consequence of the fact that he can now look back over his whole life and say, I've touched the tape at the end. I've been faithful to the trust. A crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love or have loved his appearing. And you remember in the epistle to the Philippians, he said, not as though I were already perfect. Oh no, he said, I realise the possibilities of slipping. And at last, for our comfort, he was permitted to say, I have touched the tape. I have finished my course. So now we've got the two statements before us. If we die with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. What of? Not life. Life is not in question. We pass from death unto life. Christ is our life. That is unchangeable, unalterable. But if we deny him, we shall forfeit the crown. You get the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. Well now on that foundation, every one of them is a believer. And every one of them is saved. But on that foundation, their service is erected. And it is likened to a building. And he says, one of you are building gold and silver and costly stones and another putting up a hovel. Just timber and thatch. But your service is going to be tested by fire. You yourself shall be saved, but you may suffer loss. You see, they're the words of the Apostle. Your salvation can never be touched. But you may not reach as far as it's possible. You may falter and fail. You should be saved, yet so is by fire. And so we've got these things we we keep in the balance. Instead of saying, well, I know I'm saved and that's the end of it. You say, oh, I know, oh yes, thank God I am. Thank God my salvation doesn't depend on whether I'm faithful or whether I'm true or whether I'm upright or anything. I'm saved because I was a poor sinner who couldn't possibly stretch out a hand to do anything. And I won't try to do it because I'll only spoil it. But after I'm saved, I become joined to the risen Christ. There is an association between me that's been effected that means that Christ is my life. I wonder how I'm manifesting that. And does it matter whether I manifest it? or it does in the eyes of God. So, a balance. And instead of harping on one theme, taking one text and taking a whole evening, I'll leave that and go to others. I'll go to one that is known to you all and very obvious, I think, but nevertheless may be useful, the Epistle to the Ephesians. And you say, here he goes. He says he hasn't got much time, so he's going to take the whole of the Epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, yes, but not in detail, of course. You do know the general construction of this epistle, I'm sure. It falls practically into two great halves. Chapters 1, 2 and 3 largely are to do with the revelation of a new aspect of truth which we call doctrine. And in chapters 4, 5 and 6, 
is another revelation of what sort of people we should be who believe that doctrine. There we have the doctrine in seven great sections and the practice in seven great sections. And they are pivoted on one word which comes in chapter 4 verse 1 when the apostle says I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy. The word worthy is expanded in Romans the 8th chapter when he says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. The translators have had to put the word compared to make it sense because in English you couldn't say the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. You can't stop that. Not worthy to be compared with what's coming. So now he says here's a balance. You have been rejoicing in the fact that you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You are rejoicing in this signal fact that you belong to a calling which is distinct from every other in the book you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You are rejoicing in an acceptance which goes almost beyond dreams. You are accepted in the beloved. You are boasting that not only are you a believer having received eternal life but you are united with Christ in his crucifixion, you died with him, you're buried with him, you're quickened with him, you're raised with him, you're seated with him, and ultimately to be manifested with him in glory. All the privileges, all the glory of it. And then you stop short at chapter 3, and you close the book, you say Amen at the end of that. Oh no, chapter 4, 5 and 6 comes along. And it has some ruthless words to say to some who were slipping into immoral attitudes or getting perilously near it. It was giving husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and servants a talking to. Because in that sphere of life is the only sphere here in which we can manifest and demonstrate that the truth we believe has got any power in it. So he puts the epistle to the Ephesians like that. And anyone who's Attitude of mind is, oh, keep on giving us Ephesians 3, but don't bother about 4, 5, and 6. That's unhealthy. And the person who comes the other way around, as I've had it, and says, don't give me a lot of doctrine, give me practice. I said, you're like a person who expects fruit to be on a tree before the root's in the ground. Practice in the Bible is only the outcome of the life already given in Christ. But the life may be fruitful, or it may be nothing but leaves. That's the difference, you see. So then, two illustrations to those who may not be acquainted with this way in which the Bible is so many times constructed. We have, for instance, in chapter 2, the figure of a temple. In chapter 4, the figure of a body. And in the figure of the temple, it says it's fitly framed together. And in the figure of the body, it says fitly joined together. And they're identical words. And they come exactly in the right spot in the epistle. Or another passage. Chapter 2 says, dispensationally, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Chapter 4 says that practically we were alienated from the life of God. And so you can get every passage in the first three chapters has got its corresponding practice in the last. That's the way in which God is insisting in the very construction of that mighty epistle that you cannot take 
half a crown off of my hand and take one side only. You can't walk off in this meeting with Ephesians 1, 2 and 3 and say I'm not very interested in 4, 5 and 6. Because that's just without harmony. And it means not only discord, but it means disgrace and it means disaster. Well now let's take a few other passages. Uh, I thought that you would perhaps benefit better if instead of dwelling on one only, I just gave a few examples in this meeting. I'm so thankful I'm speaking to those who believe God's word, who seek to honour his beloved son, and who are also acquainted very deeply with the teaching of these wonderful prison epistles. So you're not sitting here getting something new. Uh, we, we even have the Sunday school children saying, tell me the story often. And then the poor little mites, they don't know who Ernie Stones is. Have you noticed that? With Ernie Stones and Grave. Then you have to explain to them, it isn't the name of the boy who lives next door. But we need just the same, that someone tells us a story often. But we forget so soon. All right. Well, now let's come again to another aspect of this truth. Let's turn to the epistle to the Colossians. And in chapter 1, verse 22, we have these words. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Look at those words. And it's in the body of his flesh through death that it's brought about. And you had no work to do in that. That's what he did for you. And in the body of his flesh through death, you are assured that you will be presented. How does he put it? Holy. This is a word we use, a word we say, but hardly understand. It's a word that doesn't occur in ordinary, everyday conversation. It's a word that you would not find in the records of any business house in the whole city of London unless they happen to sell Bibles and prayer books. You would never have somebody dictating on Monday morning to the typist the word holy if they belong to the insurance companies, the banks and the commercial houses because it doesn't come in. Don't let's trifle with this word holy. And yet, without holiness, no man shall see God. I'm glad you feel helpless, I do. For I know it's utterly beyond the possibility of any mortal man to attain to holiness by his own effort. This is the only way. In the body of his flesh, through death, the whole thing finished, and a new start made, to present you unblameable. Now that word is without blemish. That's the Levitical word. The animal offered for sacrifice, or the priest, must be without blemish, physically, setting forth the spiritual reality. And then the other word, unreprovable, is the word that means to be accused. To be accused. Come so in the Acts of the Apostles, brought up before a magistrate or a ruler. So here we have a position the believer has that in the temple of God and in the law court of God he's unblemished and no one can bring any accusation against him. He's got Romans, the 8th chapter, has 
his guarantee. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect is the word that supplies this word uh, 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 reprovable. And the answer is, it is Christ that died. Yea, rather that he's risen again. Yea, who is even at the right hand of God, who ever liveth to make intercession for us. That's my guarantee. Nothing I've done. Oh, you say, that's good, isn't it? Now let's have another subject. Oh, wait a minute, Frank. Wait a minute. In this very chapter, at the end of it, the Apostle says this, verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man. Now, warning means that there's a danger that's to be avoided. Warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, what does this mean? They're going to be presented because of the offering of Christ, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. And the next minute the Apostle says, and we want to present every one of you perfect. Well, of course, that ought to cause us to stop, you see. The word perfect is a rather misunderstood word. And it's an important word in the New Testament. Its basis, the basis of the word is used every day by millions of people. And a person may be shocked, and I don't want to say anything irreverent, when I tell them that the word tele, which comes in the word television, has got a very sacred history about it, because it was uttered by Christ on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he used the word that gives us this word perfect. Perfection, by the use of this word, never means getting better and better. No. It's what the Apostle Paul says, I have finished. Paul said the same word, Kelly, that his Saviour used on the cross. I have finished. I don't only started to run, but I've reached the end, I've touched the tape. So you see the word telly. Are you people who are not interested in the meaning of words? I got tangled up just now. Somebody said to me, how are you feeling? I said, well, I'm limping, but I hope I'm not limp. And then I said, it's funny that a limp, it sticks so well, isn't it? Then I got tangled up, I couldn't see any connection. But look, friends, what connection is there between television, telescope, telegram, telephone? There must be some common denominator, mustn't there? Well, tele means distance. Television. Telephone, speak at a distance. Telegram, write at a distance. See? Telescope, see at a distance. Doesn't mean getting better. It means going on. Sticking to it. Running the race that is set before you. So we're back again to 2 Timothy 2. You see, Colossians 1 is parallel with if we died with him, we shall live with him. But the end of Colossians 1, when he says, I would present every man perfect, is, and if we endure, we shall reign with him. No contradiction. Paul isn't intruding into the work of Christ. He's only saying that you who have got the life, will you not go on to that which is beyond? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Let no man beguile you of your reward. He never once says, let no man beguile you of your life. You say, why? Well, I'll read his own words. Verse 3 of chapter 3. For ye died and your life is hid with Christ in God. You tell me that 
the Apostle Paul who wrote that would say, let no man beguile you of your life. This is a safe deposit that will never let anybody down. The safest depository in the whole universe of God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is never in question. So there's no contradiction between Colossians 1.22 and Colossians 1.28. It's only the Apostle Paul going on the next step. What are you doing with this position? How far are you reacting? And will you look at Colossians 4? Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 7. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. He comes at the beginning, he comes as the structure indicates at the end. And he gathers up what the Apostle has said. He says the Apostle is teaching this and I am praying this. Now that's a little word for us, isn't it? Tisn't everybody is a teacher. Tisn't everybody who is what you might call given the ministry of prayer. I'm positive the Apostle Paul many a time his prayers wouldn't have looked very much on paper. Chased about as he was, shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead and I don't know what, and the burden of all the churches. So at the end of Ephesians he says, pray for me. That's the Apostle. Although he says, I pray without ceasing, pray for me. So he was another fellow servant praying along the same lines as the Apostle's teaching. Anybody listening? We need those two friends for this work. So now we've got the two together. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, ye are complete in him. Now this man says, I want you to be complete in him. But you see, there's no contradiction. I want you to be in your own self, in some measure what you are, in Christ. You may never reach that standard, but it's something to aim at, isn't it? So that's what we seek to emphasise in this particular. Well, now let's come to another phase of this teaching in uh, Colossians. There's another one waiting for us in chapter 1. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father. I want you to notice, if you will, the stress on the word hath in this section. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You see, the other passage, verse 22, is in his sight. There's no hole and corner about this, friends. In the light, in his sight, we are so accepted in the beloved that that's a glorious possibility. Now then, who hath, hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now you see, that's emphasis again on the fact that it's all of grace and gift. Let me say it again. Giving thanks, not asking for it. Not praying for it, but thanking God for it. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. Made us meet. The word actually, we couldn't use it in English quite in the same way, but it means to be sufficient. That is to say, all exigencies, is that the way to pronounce that word? I hope so. 
all possible claims upon us, all the things that we might have forgotten, will all be provided. You know, when you're going for your holidays, you have two slips of paper, or one, so many shirts, so many collars, and all that bit. And when you get there, you know, one of the things you were most concerned about, you never put down on the list, or you left it on the chair. That's funny, isn't it? But think, friends, you're never going to be in that predicament in glory. Look, the Lord's not going to allow you to do the packing. In fact, if he did, you wouldn't know what you needed. What will you need when you stand in the presence of the living God? You don't know. You're worried about it? No, because Christ has undertaken it. You are made all sufficient to take your place above principality and power in that light. In a breathtaking. Well now, same epistle, Colossians. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the, re- of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Here in the first chapter of what are an inheritance of an absolute gift. And now a servant is being told that in connection with serving his master, in the right spirit, he will receive the reward of the inheritance. But they're not to be confused. The inheritance is one thing. Whether you'll ever get the reward attached to it is another thing. The if is always associated with the reward element. If you run, but you may not. If you touch the tape at the end, but you may not. If you are faithful, but you may not be. You see? So here he says, here's a balance. Don't think so much of the fact that you are made meat for the inheritance, that it doesn't matter just what you do and how you serve an earthly master because you say, oh, I'm far above all that. No, friends, no. What you are down here should correspond in some measure with what you are in him up there. Oh, I know the difficulties. Don't think I'm standing up there and saying, you take take me as a pattern. I've got some folks in this chapel who know me too intimately for that. They're listening to me now. And what their comments will be when I step over the mark and make a mistake. Well, of course, I've had some before, so I've got my replies. You see. But it isn't because of anything that we have in ourselves what we have in him. And then it should begin to work in us. The new life begins to manifest itself. That's balanced truth, friends. Balancing the gift with the responsibility. Not being burdened with one, not being made overconfident by the other, but just striking a happy medium. So we get quite a number of these things stressing this particular aspect. There's one other feature which doesn't come quite under the same heading of balancing truth with truth or doctrine with practice, uh, but is, I think, most important exhibition of the balance of truth there is in the words that are employed. You know, I said earlier in this meeting that there is a very important text. I think perhaps we ought to turn to that text in case... Some of you may not be quite acquainted with it. In 1 Corinthians 
chapter 2, the apostle is speaking, and he says, this is a principle that you should keep in mind when you're dealing with scripture, or with truth. Uh, we'll go back a little bit um, in verse to verse 9 of chapter 2. As it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him, but God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak. Now this is how these things come to us. We don't have to have visions and revelations and prophecies these have come to us in this way, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Well now, here's a case in point. The epistle to the Philippians uses two words, and those two words are never found in Paul's epistles except in Second Timothy. And I have a feeling that they have been put there so that it's utterly impossible for those who compare spiritual with spiritual and realize they're dealing with the words of the Holy Ghost. It's impossible for you to see them and not say that's on purpose. Let's see what it means. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Uh, now, to deal with that and explain its meaning, as far as we see, would mean we should have another session. But I don't think we've got any more refreshments left, friends, to make an interval. So, we'll just say, we're just dealing with a word, uh, quite apart from its application. The word depart. Now, keep this passage before you, but turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. There you've got the word. One is analuo, one is analusis. One is the uh, verb to depart, the other is the departure itself. But there's the word. Never used by the apostle anywhere else, but in those two places. Now let's come back to Philippians, but keep 2 Timothy in front of you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. That word offered is repeated in 2 Timothy. I am now ready to be offered. What he said in Philippians is this. I desire to depart. In Timothy he says, the time's come. In Philippians he said, oh, I'm willing to be offered. He said, I'm now to be offered. Can you avoid the fact that they are a pair? They belong to the same group. So I read in Philippians 1, try the things that differ, or as the margin puts it, or as the text reads, approve things that are more excellent. But the margin says, try.
try for things that differ. Well, when the Apostle writes in Timothy, the balancing epistle, he doesn't say try the things that differ again. He expands it. He says, rightly divide the word of truth. That's differing, showing the differences. And in Philippians uh, chapter 3, he says, verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's using the terms which were used in connection with the Greek sports. He was running a race with a prize at the end. So when we come to 2 Timothy, he said, I have finished my course, and that's a race course term. The word course is the word dromos. And the word dromos has entered into our own language when we speak about the hippodrome. You know, the hippo is the horse, isn't it? So he says, I have finished my course. Henceforth, a crown is the prize. There's the reward of the inheritance. There you shall reign with him if you endure. Why, it's all on all fours with scripture, isn't it? This balance that we find, a gift which you can neither win nor lose, that you can never get by merit, and then after you've received it, the Lord says to you, and what are you going to do with it? I'm now dealing with you as a servant. I'm entrusting you with a talent, or with two talents, or with five talents, or whatever it may be. It's in that capacity that you may win or lose something. So if you died with him, you shall live with him. If we are faithless, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Thank God for that. But in the middle of it, if we endure, we shall reign with him. And if we deny him, he'll sadly have to say, no crown for you. I think that's balancing truth, don't you? It sends us away rejoicing in a complete salvation, yet walking delicately, because we know full well how frail we are, realising that we do contain treasure, but remembering that God is using exceedingly earthen vessels. Well, that's our thought this evening, friend. Keep truth in the balance. Remember that privilege and responsibility go hand in hand. So that instead of being lopsided, there are some lopsided Christians who are leaning over to the right. And they are emphasising predestination, election, final perseverance, and all the things that are going to make up what we call hyper-Calvinism. All perfectly true. Then there are others who lean over to the left. They emphasise absolute free will. They emphasise the need for works to such an extent that it makes salvation not a gift, but a reward. But the truth is halfway between the two. So I finish this evening by referring to that question of works in relation to salvation which we get embedded in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Earlier in verse 5, the apostle has interrupted himself by saying, by grace he has saved. You see that slipped into brackets. 
It's so fine to see the human element creeping in, he couldn't stop himself. He almost said hallelujah, you know, when he was speaking about salvation. But now after finishing what he wanted to say, he comes back to it in verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, that's a very, a very complete statement, and yet it's not quite all the truth, is it? You see, it is true to say that salvation is not of works. It is the gift of God. And there are some who've taken that line to such an extent that they abominate good works altogether. Oh, I remember in my very earliest days I tried to write a hymn and one of the lines comes out like this. Such vile antinobianism is sin. My, what a word to sing in a, in a meeting. Nobody ever sang it, of course. But you know what antinomianism is? Oh, did I say it properly? Antinomianism, it means to say that you have no relation to any law or governing or anything. You're free. That, that's license, not liberty. So we must go on and get the balance in this. This apostle said, not of works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we only go one more verse, we find that we're not saved by our good works, but after we are saved, we produce good works. That's balance again. Will you turn to Titus? You say, I thought you were going to finish with Ephesians. All this is only an appendix at the end. Titus. Chapter 3, verse 4. But after the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. You see? Same chapter, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So you're not saved by your good works, but he said, I want to see them. How perfectly balanced is this teaching? How perfectly balanced it should be in our hearts and minds and ministry. So, will you read together with me now the closing verses of Titus chapter 2? And with that, I hope we shall bring our little study to a close. Titus chapter 2, verse 9, speaking to servants again. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. I always like the own masters. I mean, too many masters, God doesn't want anybody to try to obey. Why? Just to please them in all things? Not back answering. Not pilfering. It looks as though something was characteristic of those servants in those days that we have to sometimes say, isn't it? They're really ordinary people, you see. Not back answering, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Isn't that lovely? A poor servant in the days of an apostle wrote didn't even belong to a union. They were slaves, the majority of them. Yet they could adorn the doctrine. Do you know Ruskin's definition of ornament? It's the added love of a workman. It's not done already by a press going like, um, bom, um, bom. 
and disguising bad work. The man who made the thing couldn't leave it alone until he just gave his little bit of added love. That's all you can do, friends, but what a wonderful thing it is that God says to you, I know, put your little bit of added love to it. Won't make it any better. Won't make it any more useful. Won't make it any more secure. But that's what you can do, and even a servant can do it with a master that may not be very much like Christ. But we haven't finished yet. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. Now I'll read it again and leave out the expansions and give you the one straight statement. I think it's worth doing it again. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us. The grace of God that saves us goes on teaching us. What? That we should live looking for that blessed hope. That's just extracted it, you see. That's the character of people we should be. Timothy says in chapter 4, not to me only, but also those who have loved his appearing. Here it comes again in another way. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. There's one side of the story. And many rejoice in it. Thank God for it. But there's another side of the story. He's delivered us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's the other side of the story. It's here again. I forgot that it was there. So is another bit that's come out. Just the same. You're redeemed and yet there's this other side. The adorning comes in as well. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee.